There is a swamp, not far from there. Once habitable land, but now the haunt of diving birds and marsh-loving coots. Jupiter went there, disguised as a mortal, and Mercury, the descendant of Atlas, setting aside his wings, went with his father, carrying the caduceus. A thousand houses they approached, looking for a place to rest. A thousand houses were locked and bolted, but one received them. It was humble, it is true, roofed with reeds and stems from the marsh, but godly bosses and the equally aged Philemon had been wedded in that cottage in their younger years, and there had grown old together. Yes, yes, I can hear you all yelling back at me over the interwebs. You know that I have brought you many obscure biblical stories before now. Stories that made you wonder, is that really in the Bible? But this time you are sure, right? There is no way that that text came from anywhere in the Bible neither the Old Testament nor the New. And, yes, you are right to a certain extent. What I just read to you is actually a passage from the Metamorphoses, an epic poem written by the ancient Roman poet Ovid. The translation is by A.S. Klein. It is Ovid's beautifully told version of a myth that he says that he heard from the people of Phrygia in Asia Minor. So that part is correct. The passage is from Ovid. But as for this story not being in the Bible, I may have to disagree with you there. This is retelling the Bible. Episode 7.6 Zeus and Hermes Come to Town Timothy had lived for his whole life in the town of Lystra in the region of Phrygia. And he had lived, in a way, with a foot in two worlds. His mother was a Jew named Eunice. She had raised him and taught him in the ways of her people, teaching him devotion to the God of Israel. But Timothy's father was Greek, and from his father, Timothy had learned the amazing stories of the gods and heroes of the Greeks. He loved to hear stories of Zeus, and the women that he seduced, and the adventures that he had. 
He admired the great Greek heroes like Heracles and Theseus, and he often dreamed of accomplishing even a few of the things that such men had done. He did respect and honor the traditions of his mother's people, but he never had much of an opportunity to observe them personally. He had never traveled to far-distant Jerusalem to attend some festival there, and there weren't even enough Jewish people in Lystra to support a synagogue that would have allowed him to observe the prayers and rituals of his people. Meanwhile, he was constantly surrounded by the practices of his father's people. There was an important temple dedicated to Zeus just outside of the town gates that functioned as a social, educational, and business center for the entire region. But more than that, the gods of the Greeks inhabited the hills and valleys all around them. There was scarcely a single landmark that did not have a story of some god or hero attached to it. For example, a little to the north of Lystra, there were two trees of majestic stature that stood one next to the other. One was an oak, the other a lime tree. And as they stood there, the branches of the two trees wove together and even seemed to grasp at each other's trunks. The two trees were revered by the people who lived there and were often decorated with garlands. And the people who lived there told a story about those two trees. One day, Divine Zeus called to his son Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and proposed that they two go down and walk among the mortals and visit them for a while. And so that is what they did, hiding their glory and taking on human form, they went into the region of Phrygia. But as they passed through the place, they found no welcome. They approached stately manors and sprawling villas, homes of every size, but the wealthy and prosperous people had no interest in offering hospitality to the weary travelers. Finally, Zeus and Hermes approached a simple cottage that was inhabited by Bossus and Philemon. This aged couple had very little, and their home was rugged and rustic, but they gave the two gods a warm welcome and offered them a simple but hearty meal. At the end of their meal, the gods were so pleased with their hosts and so angry 
with everybody else that they decided to take action. They led the old couple out of their cottage and up a nearby hill. As Bossis and Philemon stood there and watched, the waters rose and flooded out the farms of all of their neighbors, leaving the land practically useless. The only exception was the land on which their poor home stood. The cottage itself was transformed before their eyes into a beautiful temple dedicated to the worship of the king of the gods. Feeling satisfied with the punishment they had doled out to their neighbors, the gods turned to the old couple to ask what they could do to reward them for their hospitality. Bossis and Philemon scarcely needed to consult with one another. Their request was simple. They asked to serve the gods as priests as long as they lived, and then, when their time was done, they asked to die together so that one need not live apart from the other. The gods did as they requested. And when the time came for them to pass from this world, they added the special honor of transforming them into the two embracing trees as a memorial to their extraordinary hospitality. Timothy had heard that story his whole life, and as much as he loved the stories of David and Moses that his mother told him, there was something about knowing that that story had happened in this land. It just made it more real to him. All of his life, Timothy had lived around people who had this story so deeply ingrained into them that they lived in perpetual fear that some god might show up at their doorstep and that they, unknowing, might turn them away. Anytime anything unusual happened and some stranger was involved, people couldn't help but wonder whether Zeus and Hermes, or some other god, had showed up on the scene. Sometimes their reaction could be over the top, to be sure, but it was generally harmless. In fact, it encouraged people to be kind and hospitable to strangers, and how could that be a bad thing? Timothy wasn't really sure that he believed in gods like Zeus and Hermes. His mother and his grandmother always insisted that they were nothing more than statues carved out of marble. 
But there is something about a good story that, whether you really believe it or not, has a way of affecting how you look at the world. And so sometimes, yes, Timothy just took it for granted that the old stories did tell him how the world worked. The story was certainly in his mind one day when a couple of Jews passed through the town. One of them was named Paul. He was the one who wouldn't stop talking. And his quieter companion was named Barnabas. This Paul fellow was really quite an interesting and engaging speaker. And it didn't take long for him to gather a fascinated crowd. The people of Lystra were always open to listen to some new idea. And Paul had some innovative things to say. He spoke, like many Jews, that Timothy had heard before. He taught about the God of Abraham and the foolishness of idol worship. Pretty standard stuff. But then his message kind of went off the rails when he spoke about someone named Jesus and the idea of the resurrection. That was intriguing, anyways. But what really got people's attention was when Paul, in the middle of his long message, suddenly paused and looked over at a man on the other side of the square. It was a young man that Timothy had known all of his life, a young man who had never been able to walk on his own. He spent his days in the square, sitting on a mat where his family left him, often begging from the people who passed by. Nobody had ever expected much of him, and most people barely even acknowledged him, as he seemed to be a drain on the whole town more than anything else. But he seemed to be listening in rapt attention as Paul spoke, perhaps because at the moment Paul was talking about this Jesus who had somehow risen from the dead and how he had created a community in which everyone could have a meaningful place. And when Paul said that and looked over at the man on the mat, he provided an illustration of his point by saying, You, there! Stand upright on your feet. <laughs> and then, much to the amazement of everyone, the man proceeded to do as he had been told. Well, as you can imagine, most of the people stopped listening after that, and whispers quickly began to spread throughout the crowd. 
when people see something that doesn't fit into their worldview, they will struggle to make sense of it. And when they are that confused, they often resort to the stories that are familiar to them, trying to make the strange new thing conform to a comforting narrative. And I am sure that you have guessed which story the people of Lystra turned to to make sense of what they had just seen. The words that began to fly through the crowd were words like the visitors and gods in disguise. There was also a serious undercurrent of fear and anxiety as people whispered about the need for hospitality and avoiding judgment. But, since all of this discussion in the crowd was taking place in the local language and not in the Greek that was used in business and civic affairs, Paul and Barnabas were quite oblivious to all that was being said. Paul finished speaking, and he and Barnabas withdrew to the house of a family that had previously offered them hospitality. Once they had left, the discussions among the Lystrians became much more frenzied. The more they talked about what they had just seen, the more they found ways to make it fit with the story that they had all known since childhood. Before long, it became the consensus of the entire group that they were, in fact, dealing with the very same gods that they knew from the myth. Since Paul had done all of the talking, they concluded that he must be none other than the messenger god Hermes. Meanwhile, Barnabas, who had sat smiling beneficently behind him the whole time, he was taken to be none other than the king of the gods himself. But, once that had been concluded, it only led to sheer panic on the part of the populace. How could it be possible that the one family who had happened to welcome these strangers should steal all of the blessing that really should come to them all? Even worse, would they all be condemned in judgment for their failure? It was at that moment that someone else arrived with a somewhat different agenda. It was the priest from the local temple of Zeus. The rumors of what had been happening in the square had flown to him as well, and he was determined that he would do whatever he could to make sure that his temple would be the biggest winner in this whole affair. I mean, just imagine what would happen if he could announce to the whole world that Zeus himself 
had come to his temple? Worshippers and visitors would pour in from all over the countryside, desperate to stand in the very place where the God had stood. He would be flooded with donations, overwhelmed with patrons seeking to curry his favor. And all he needed to do was persuade these strangers to drop by the temple. He didn't even care, by the way, whether these were actually gods or not. All that mattered was that the people thought that they were. All that mattered was a plausible story. The priest had come prepared, bringing two fine oxen with garlands already strung about their horns. He was ready to slaughter them both right there and then and get the altar fires burning. If only he could prepare a perfect sacrifice for these two wandering strangers, his financial future and that of his temple would be secure. It probably had something to do with the frantic bellowing of the oxen at the sight of the sacrificial knife. But it was at this point that Paul and Barnabas, inside the house, finally realized how crazy things were getting outside. Once they came out, despite some significant language barriers, it didn't take them too long to clue into all of the wild conclusions that the crowd had jumped to. But even then, the people were so caught up in their ideas that they scarcely even paid any attention to what the two strangers were saying. They literally had to start tearing off their own clothes in an extreme act of very mortal grief for the people to actually stop and listen to them for a moment. People, Paul cried, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And that quickly stopped everybody in their tracks because they realized that Paul had just said something that no God would ever say. Indeed, that no one who actually believed in the gods would ever say. He had just called all of the elements of their worship, the statues, the temples, and the sacrifices, worthless things. Everyone knew that these were the very things that preserved the empire, that ensured its ongoing prosperity, 
I mean, wasn't that what the whole story of Bossus and Philemon was about? That if you treat the gods with due honor, they will give you a blessing. But if not, watch out. The people of Lystra were forced to look at both Paul and Barnabas from a very different point of view that day. Most of them didn't like it one bit. They began to feel as if they had been duped, as if the two strangers had exploited some of their most meaningful stories. They were so resentful that when... Later, other people showed up in town, spreading bad stories about the pair. It didn't take much at all to turn the crowd against them. But there were some. And Timothy counted himself among them, who were very intrigued by these two strange preachers. What had happened with them had forced him to look at the stories he had heard all of his life from a very different point of view. Over the next couple of years, he found himself talking more with his mother and learning about the stories of her people. And when, eventually, Paul passed through Lystra once again, he found in Timothy someone who was very eager to learn from him whatever he could teach. The writer of the Book of Acts, who is traditionally identified as Luke, clearly had the myth of Bossus and Philemon in his mind, and perhaps even spread open on the table in front of him, as he wrote of the exploits of Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, in the fourteenth chapter of his book. It is hard to know exactly how much this story reflects the actual encounter that Paul had with the pagans in Lystra, it could be that the events happened pretty much exactly like that. But it is also possible that Luke created this story as an example of the kind of clash between classical paganism and the Christian faith that occurred in general. A way of summing up the kind of clashes that Paul had in one simple and relatable story. Either way, I can't help but wonder whether Luke is making fun of the beliefs of these pagans in the way that he tells the story. But I suspect that he is not. Instead, what I suspect he is doing is he is writing a tribute to the power of stories themselves and how they must have influenced the worldview of the people who told them. That's why I chose to tell the story from the point of view of somebody on the side of the locals.
Of course, Timothy, a half-Jewish, half-Greek young man from Lystra, is not mentioned during this story of the first encounter of Paul with the people from this town. He is only named later when Paul returns to Lystra and decides to take him with him as a traveling companion. But I figured that Timothy would have had to have been in the crowd the first time Paul came by, so I started wondering how he might have seen it. It is a story above all about how the stories we tell shape our worldview. As a storyteller himself, the writer of the book of Acts had to respect that power of the stories that the people in Phrygia told. It was just that he believed that he knew a better story. And better stories always win out. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please do subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for this podcast is Ada by Kevin McLeod. And the mood music for this episode is the instrumental version of Regenbogen Trauerland by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. Sound effects from zapsplat.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.